This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. Well, hello there. And just like that, Shasta Faye Hepworth is back, bringing with her inherent vice's most complex and erotic and disturbing and confounding scene. One in which mystery begets mystery, and both she and old Doc Sportello are laid completely bare, and yet are somehow all the more mysterious. On the subject of femme fatales, today's guest wrote the following in her extraordinary synergiology of the character type in her bright wall dark room essay, The Nine Lives of the Femme Fatale. So, is the femme fatale feminist, sexist, misandrist. Taking her as a whole, from Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity, right on down to Amy Elliott Dunn in Gone Girl, that becomes a hard question to answer. The femme fatale has become a cultural shorthand for women who fuck and fuck up with abandon. Think 1990s and early aughts Angelina Jolie, or further back, someone like 1960s to 1970s era Elizabeth Taylor. Like the archetype, their transgressions led her to be identified as something animalistic, a viper, a spider woman, something to want to fear and want in equal measure. All too often, women who are selfish, complex, mercenary, or emotional firestorms get branded as femme fatales. The femme fatale can have all of these traits, but a female character has to have an air of doom about her. She potently mixes the mores of sex and death. She either consciously or unconsciously destroys people around her in seeking to gain power. In many ways, she's a modernization of the combined myths of Medusa and Lilith, two mythic figures whose stories of anger, monstrousness, and lust have been reclaimed and deconstructed in feminist circles. So, why not the femme fatale? Women in American film are so often defined by absence, absence of self, absence of voice, absence of purpose. There are so many compromises women make in the course of even one day. You smile when men are crude. You lie and say you have a boyfriend when a man won't leave you alone. You take up as little space as possible the femme fatale takes a different approach. She's tired of fucking compromising. She's tired of playing your perfect little wife, your prodigal daughter, your 2 a.m. fuck. She wants more. And if she has to carve a bloody road to get to the promise of brighter days and a sense of autonomy, then so be it. All right. So Inherent Vice both is and isn't a film noir, just as its characters both inhabit the tropes of the genre and yet remain kind of hazily just beyond those tropes of definition. And Shasta Faye Hepworth occupies the space typically held by a femme fatale in Inherent Vice's story of, let's call it a soft-boiled noir. But I think she becomes something else entirely. Or does she? 
I don't really know. Give me a break, gang. This is a really heavy scene. And joining me on this scene is someone, frankly, I can't imagine not doing this episode with. As a writer for Vulture, The Atlantic, The Criterion Collection, Brightwall Dark Room, and others, her words offer a peerlessly inquisitive and lyrical and most of fucking all challenging journey through films and art. When I think of her writing, I often think of this piece she did for Vulture, in which she listed 33 essential neo-noirs, a list that both confirmed a lot of genre favorites, it also did not include several others, and was also studded with several left-field surprises. And I say all that because just as today's scene challenges everything I think that one thinks about, what they know about Inherent Vice, its characters, and its story, my guest today so often challenges everything a reader thinks they know about a beloved film or a genre or a perform performer. Speaking of which, read, read her piece on Keanu Reeves. It's amazing. All of which is my rambling and discursive way of saying she is perfect for today's episode. So with that, Angelica Jade Bastien, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here and to get my ego stroked. I wasn't <laughs> expecting that, but I really loved it. Thank you. I need it. I'm hungry for it as a writer. <laughs> Are you sure you look terrified at the start there? I saw those eyes go big. Oh, yeah, because I was like, okay, which? Oh, that's what he's reading. I wrote that so long ago. Oh, my God. Uh, baby writer stuff. Oh, <sighs> If that's your baby writer shit, you know what? Nope, we're not gonna. I'm not. I'm not. We're not gonna get in a fight. I mean, that was a few years ago. I was still mm. when I wrote that. I was still uh, freelancing, and now I've been on staff with Vulture for almost three years. So it's you know, it's interesting what people pick up on in your work and what resonates with people. You know what I mean? I know exactly what you what you mean, and I gotta say, when it comes to you, well. Actually, there's a lot when it comes to you, because as I said, there's the Keanu piece, which I still crown jewel. But no, when I see you post something and I'm like, oh, my God, she's writing something about film noir. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> or uh, um, I, I promise I don't do it in that creepy whisper, though. Most of the time I don't. Sure. Uh, yeah, well, um, or uh, when you're, you know, I, I, I love how you more, on more than one occasion have really kind of interrogated the the idea of the femme fatale and the woman's a woman's role in film noir and hard-boiled uh, cinema. Uh, I, I, I cannot, I can't get enough of it. I can't get enough of it. It is one of the myriad of reasons why you're here today to hold my hand like a baby. Oh God. Incredibly, incredibly interesting and strange uh, and odd scene, but, but, so we, 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 we have a lot to dig in here and what is probably in Hairvice's most divisive and explicated and interpolated and debated scene. It's a lot of words. Uh, uh, but before we do that, we're going to journey through the past, you and I, back to those halcyon days of 2014. The new PTA joint, Hairvice, it's just dropped in cities across America. It's right around Christmas time. Did you see it when it came out? No, I didn't. Just not your thing? Well, that is your thing. No, it totally is my thing. But like that, you know, 
holiday time is always weird for me and I feel like I always miss a few movies around that time and I was still a freelancer then so it's not like I was just getting all these screeners that you get in the mail that just like overflow to you see this is the thing they don't tell you like once you get on staff someplace everything is so much easier it's like insane how hard being a freelancer is (laughs) do not miss it at all these words may come back to bite me knock on wood they don't (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's okay. funny for a movie that's all about lamenting the past it's kind of refreshing for you to hear to hear you go hey, yeah you know the past fuck it no no sir yeah no, don't look back i mean mm, you know fuck the past but also you can <laughs> touch people in the past so there was there was better times although not better hair days my hair looks so much better these days i'm so much hotter right now it sucks it sucks to be hot in quarantine like I don't know. I, this is like really going on tangents, but I, I promise I'm gonna circle around the idea of desire throughout this entire conversation because that's so important to the scene. And there's something there's like a hazy desire to the whole movie. I just love the movie's vibe, man. I'm just totally on its wavelength. So I didn't see it in theaters, but I ended up seeing it like you know once it came out on DVD, and I was just like, why didn't I see this in theaters? This is like totally on my wavelength like this has everything I love and it's just like beautiful and like has an interesting relationship to the past and to memory and to a personal history in a way that I find very intriguing and it also feels very vast and lived in um it was really fun revisiting it today too while I was egregiously high the phrase egregiously high off the top of your head is like reason number 1019 why you were on the show today and you know i i, I would i i don't think that this needs to be like a video podcast or anything like that but i do wish people at home or in their cars or whatever the hell they're doing could see the very sizable joint that is making its way behind your mic to your mouth right now so do what you got to do do it go ahead put it get it on get it on there you go (laughs) and i also reason number 1020 that you are here today was the fact that you did bring it back you were able to go on that big what i thought was going to be a cul-de-sac of you know what i'm looking great right now i'm looking great and it's quarantine and you, you like a true writer, you looped that in to your overall thesis. You brought it back like a chorus. And I am so impressed that you did. And you looped it. But when you did loop it back, one of the things you mentioned is the, the vastness of inherent vice and both its, its vastness and its lived in nature. And there's a phrase that I keep using to talk about this movie, and that is, it's a postcard movie. Mm-hmm. This, this movie feels like you... It feels a little bit like, I don't know, like after after someone passes away or something and you're going through their things and you find this, you find this postcard with this vista that you've never seen before with maybe a message on, a, on the back from someone you've never heard of. And it's just like this tunnel into a life and into a history that you, you never knew existed. And I know that's heavy, but you know, you're already getting high and we're only like what five minutes and six minutes into the episode. So this is, Oops. this is what we're going to talk about. Uh, 
but yeah, there's, there's an emotional vastness. And I think that that is one of the hardest things about this film for people who saw it in 2014, the few who did, and didn't bite. It didn't, didn't, didn't go on the ride is, you know, you watch the trailers for this film, you, you, you see the ads for this movie, and it's like, oh, it's The Big Lebowski. It's The Big Lebowski mm-hmm. 2. Or, uh, you know, if you were a movie nerd, you're like, oh, great, PTA is doing his long goodbye. Awesome. He's, he's yeah. finally doing his... It's been the first time since, you know, the, the, the big ensemble of Boogie Nights or Magnolia that he's doing a full-on Altman jam again. Thank God. And then you go and you watch the movie, and no, it's just a bunch of people sitting around rooms talking about how sad they are that they miss someone, that they miss that a time has passed. And there's just, there's no other way to say it. It's a postcard movie, postcard film. Now, when you finally caught it on video, when you walked away from it, did you, did you love it? Did you, were you like, that was weird. I'm going to have to sit with that for like, you know, there's, there's, there's a movie you know, for me, The Master was a movie that I, as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, I love this. I have no mm-hmm. idea what the fuck that was, but I love this. But I'm certain I'm going to think, I'm going to be thinking about it for another six months before I know why I love it. Was Inherent Vice like that for you? Or did, did the noir trappings and structure strike enough of a chord that you're able to walk away right away going, oh, I know, I know exactly why this is my jam. I know why this is my Yeah, movie. yeah, it was definitely like the noir trappings, you know, that's like fucking catnip for me. That's like, you know. You, you give me a little little taste of that. I'm like, oh, baby, this is that shit. <laughs> um, but on a more serious note, um, yeah, it was definitely the noir vibe. And I like any time when something is like, has its foot in noir, but isn't like strictly noir. And especially- Not painting by the numbers. It's exactly. Doing yeah, it's like playing with the genre in a fun way. It's- it's upending some conventions you expect, especially with things like, you know, how a mystery is solved and the exposition you sort of expect and the kind of dialogue you expect, even with crime flicks. Um, An inherent vice just sort of, yeah, just, I was on the right wavelength for it, but I think I've definitely grown to love it more because when I originally saw it, it was not smoking weed. I'd never smoked weed before. But- Wow. Yeah, I know, right? I was a late, I was a late bloomer and everything. Um, now I'm just a hedonist. It's terrible. <laughs> Tell your children, warn them. Hedonist spinsters out there in the <laughs> world <laughs> corrupting people. Um, <laughs> um, I completely lost track of my point. But this is why you shouldn't get high. You know what? Kids. You know what? That there are a couple of things that happen on almost every increment vice episode. And the first is there will be a tangent that just just comes out of nowhere and we go on it because this is an hair vice podcast. Why not? But then there is always that second thing, that second tangent that ends with the person going, you know, I have no idea where I was going with this. I I, I don't know. I lost it. We were talking about films that play with noir convention, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. aren't according to Hoyle beat by beat by beat rigidly adhering to that structure you know what's and I think what's that's 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 kind of the coolest thing or one of the coolest things about the way Inherent Vice is put together the way it's structured is you know the first eight minutes of this film or maybe my favorite eight minutes of anything PTA has done and I've said it before you've got right out of the big an intro right out of the big sleep I mean this is pure Chandler you've got the woman 
coming through the door with a mystery that involves the detective's past and something happened horrible coming down the road in the future. It's it's a Los Angeles noir, and I I, I live here. I love LA noir. <laughs> and then you throw on top of that a cool ass can song, cool ass neon font on top of that. That right there, that eight minute movie. That's all I. I could have left right then and there when I saw this in the theater. That that was good enough for me. Good enough for me. But what I what I what I think is so interesting about the film, one of the billion things I think is so interesting about the film is how the longer you settle into its weird rhythms, it feels it feels a bit like the movie itself is someone who falls asleep halfway through watching another noir. And then the second half of the film is kind of their stoner's dream, half awake stoner's dream of the movie that they're watching. This kind of loose weave drift of interconnected scenes and characters that kind of do lock up on this inter, this, like, this intuitive level, but almost never explicitly so. The way in, 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 a noir, in a noir film, you get a scene like at the end of the Blue Dahlia where someone just kind of shows up uh, the way they do at the end of the cycle and goes, this is exactly why this happened. He did this, and he did that. And, that, and, that. and instead, uh, uh, everything in the film begins as a noir. Characters, tropes, that first scene. But it all kind of starts drifting leftward into something mm-hmm. else entirely. Like, like someone getting a little high. It, just, it kind of goes askew. And as someone who I know traffics in this shit and loves this kind of stuff and loves these movies do you even view inherent vice as a film noir or a neo-noir or is it just something else entirely to you so if anyone's like read my 33 essential neo-noir list (laughs) you'll know that i put some things on there that were like wait you consider that a noir like what are you doing i had several people in my mentions like what are you talking about? This isn't a noir. And I'm like, but can't it be? It has its foot in noir. Don't you see it? So like, I feel like Inherent Vice is sort of, it has its foot in the genre, but it's not necessarily trying to clearly evoke it. So I consider it a a neo-noir, but I know that may be a little contentious for other people, but I don't care. (laughs) And I gotta say, really quick, brief aside, because this is a podcast of nothing but asides. Bless your heart. Thank you for including After Dark My Sweet in that list. That is one of my all-time favorite neo-noirs. It deserves recognition. It's a fine double feature with this movie. And yeah, I just got that and also Devil in the Blue Dress. And uh, my God, you did you? Yeah, you did. You included one false move. Ooh, yep. Needs more attention. Needs more attention. But this is not a podcast for those movies, so I got to keep us on track. <laughs> I got to keep us on track. One of us is getting high. One of us has got to be the boss here. One of us has got to be keep us straight. So you watch the movie. You love it. Did you get it? That's my other question for people is, oh, the look on your face right now. Did you get the movie? Did you get the like on a granular plot level? Did you understand anything that you had seen the first time through? No, but I liked it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was... Yeah, I totally, I think, miss certain things, like certain, like, dynamics weren't, like, super clear to me, but I just enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed the world. I love any time we see a, a noir, a noir-adjacent film uh, that has a lot of time and sunlight. 
Like I always think yeah. that's a lot of fun. That's a really fun way to play with the genre and our expectations of the genre because I feel like visually noir has reached like classic noir when replicated in the present day has reached the level of visual parody or cliche. Like when you try to like do the Venetian blinds and like the stark black and white, there's something about, I don't know, modern faces, maybe crappy cinematographers. I don't know, but there's mistakes (laughs) that have been made with modern noir trying to like replicate exactly what classic noir did. Everything starts to look like Sin City too. Remember Sin City? Like, remember that movie? I remember it. I remember Sin City, yeah. I remember Sin City very clearly. And, like, Frank Miller. I don't know. <laughs> Do go, we with need to- <laughs> go with God. I will say, um, I wish I did not remember Sin City 2. I really wish I, I did. saw it. Like, oh, what, what oh. happened in Sin City 2? Well, things were black and white. There was a lot of Venetian blinds. There was a lot of naked women. But the one thing that worked, and here we are, look at us, two sharp writers bringing it home, bringing it back. There was one face. There was one face amidst that modern canon of actors in that film that belonged in a film noir. There was one granite chiseled block head in that film that belongs on the big screen uh, crisscrossed with Venetian blinds, and that is Josh Brolin. Josh Brolin has a face for 1950s noir. He belongs there. Yeah, and that's you, can, I you can totally see him being next to somebody like Sterling Hayden or like Robert Ryan and like some oh, him and Ro- Imagine him and Robert Ryan buttonheads yeah. in a movie. Imagine that. That's it's, whole, okay. it's another podcast, but for a minute, everybody, think about that. How bad? Think about it for a second. You're vibing, <laughs> aren't you? You see it. First Robert Ryan mentioned on the show, by the way. Hmm. <laughs> What's wrong with people? Mention Robert Ryan. I feel like we're we're doing like 15 mini episodes in a row right now. I know. It's like, let's go through a history of noir men in noir. I totally put... Joaquin Phoenix's doc, though, on that masculine lineage. Exactly. There's stuff at play there, and we're going to get into that when we get into the scene, but I am glad that I was not made to be the one to have to say that for the 50th time on this show. I'm finally glad someone brought that up before I did, because yes, you are absolutely right. Before we get there, though, before we get there. So, how now that you've seen it a couple of times, do you have a a deeper grasp on the underlying mechanics like the, let's get let's get the plot out of the way let's let's do what the movie does let's get the plot out of the way do you feel like you get it now do you do you do you see where things link up do you see what the story is it's being told or is it still just a mood piece to you i think i see what story is being told but okay that's a loaded question for a few reasons because they're probably is a story that Paul Thomas Anderson had in his head that's very Mm -hmm. specific to the movie and how it should be interpreted. And maybe I have interpreted it completely fucking differently, which would not surprise me. I have some weird takes on things, so who knows? But I feel like I understand what the movie's going for, what sort of mood it's trying to evoke, what, what it's trying to speak to, what its characters are speaking to. You know, maybe also 
I don't know if it's just me, but I'm seeing loneliness in everything I watch lately. So that, oh my like, God, that's through, all this like, movie is. It's all this I know, movie. and it came through so intensely on this rewatch earlier today. And I think it's probably because of, you know, everything that's going on in the world and having to be isolated. It's like, we're hungry so much I mean, for touch. The first shot of this film, or not first shot of this film, but the first shot of our ostensible hero is laying on his couch, a couch that comes up later in the scene, but laying on his couch, just looking out into that gunmetal blue twilight and really quietly in the sound mix, just humming a song to himself, mm. probably thinking about the woman and how much he misses her that literally walks in not 30 seconds later saying, that he's, doesn't that, the, like Joaquin Phoenix's first shot of him just laying there looking out the window, that feels like everyone right now just, thinking about and doing what we're all doing, which is remembering when and thinking about how it was better then and how much you can miss someone. And now to go, to go back to what you were saying about, you know, maybe this is what PTA meant versus how you feel. Something that I've mentioned on the show a lot is how, I don't know if you've read the book, the, the pinch on book. Nope. <laughs> I feel bad though. I feel really bad. You didn't do I your homework, Angelica. You didn't I, I do the didn't, homework. I didn't. God I really damn was, it. and I had lead time with this podcast. So could I you have did. actually read? We, we talk. We've been talking about this since I think almost last year. So yeah, we've been talking about this since definitely last year. Yeah, had, this since before in the before time. In the before I like, time, I like to call it. So I totally had time, and I thought about it. And then I'm like, I'm not, <laughs> not only did you not do your homework, you came to class stoned. You got I know. I, I became the badass chick I always looked up to in like high school. Now I'm her. I'm that badass chick. <laughs> Screw homework. I'm gonna smoke weed with my friends. <laughs> okay. <laughs> then I will I will throw this out to you about the book and anyone who's listened to the show uh, will have heard me say this before. So bear with me. But the interesting, the thing that is so interesting to me about the film and why I think I love the film more is that the book is very much Pinchon's angry look back as a man writing this novel in 2009, looking back at what was looking at the promise and the potential of his generation in the 1960s and slowly watching the arc of that potential curdle into what the 1970s became mm -hmm. and the book is very much an investigation at the murder scene of an entire generation and it kind of uses the death of a, rom uh, of a romance a romantic breakup as a metaphor for all of that you know doc and shasta splitting up shasta's the 60s and doc is is pinchonist uh, he Gordita Beach, where, where Doc lives, is a thinly veiled fictionalized version of Manhattan Beach, which is where Pinchon lived in, in 68, 69. So that's the book to Pinchon. What I love about what PTA does is he inverts that metaphor, and the film is no longer an end of a, an era elegy for the 1960s, but it reverses the metaphor and uses that era's death as the metaphor for the pain that you feel when you just miss someone, when you're longing for someone and, and you have, and, and as he even said, that someone's not even right for you. But in, in, in he, he says it. So he's, I love the way he puts it. He's like, 
that's the one you just can't help but go is she thinking about me is she fucking mm. someone else does she miss me at all when she's with someone else does she even think of me the way i'm thinking of her right now or was it is it am i no longer even a memory and ultimately he's like it's about how much you miss someone that you shouldn't now now that i've tainted you with all of that information what the book is what we assume the book is to, to, to pinch on because he ain't talking and what we know the film is to to pta you said that you have your own take on this and it might be a little wild and i'm curious what is inherent vice to you not the genre not the plot mechanics what is this to you i mean for me i think <laughs> i'm actually not too far <laughs> from Paul thomas anderson just because i've been interested in and this is just something that just interests me in general um in studying how desire curdles and how it yeah. changes and how we lose it and how we hunger to kind of replay the same mix of lust and romance sometimes that you can't really capture it's like that first high man i'm still trying to capture it but it's not yeah. happening i mean that becomes your model though that you that you know to follow exactly and i think that's what really captures me about this movie is its emotional bramble and how complicated it is in that way. Yeah, because because it's interesting, you know, it, this doesn't get a lot of attention, I don't think, but Doc has a life. He has a girl. He has, you know, she they they might be complicated. Uh, he and Penny. But, uh, you know, a uh, straight-rolled gal looking for hippie thrills, as he, as he puts it. But he has a life with this woman. But there is that, there is that throb. There is like, like, a, like a repeating chorus that, you know, Shasta Faye Hepworth, Shasta Faye Hepworth, Shasta Faye Hepworth. It, he cannot get it out of his head, like a song. Mm -hmm. And there's something so... There's something so right about what you said about how we, we, we follow these patterns. And it's like, he, his his life is he's go he's doing okay he's got a job he's he's got a roof over his head he's got a gal that cares about him but he's gonna be willing to ruin his whole life and and risk his whole life because she says and i find that so fascinating and i think part of it is because i do think that he is to some degree a hero mm. and i do think he is like pta says he's a puppy dog he's loyal He's loyal yeah. to the people he cares about, and he kind of can't help who he cares about. There's a, if he cares about someone, that's just who, that he's going to care about that person to the end. But I also do think there is an undercurrent of darker, stranger, weirder masculinity to Doc in that he can't relinquish a sense of or feeling of control or okay. connection to Shasta, any kind of connection to Shasta Faye's life is a form of control because it means they're not totally over. They might mm -hmm. keep saying this don't mean we're back together, but by still being the detective hot on her heels, it also means that they're not totally apart either. And I think it, it would be appropriate to say when talking about Inherent Vice's most complicated scene coming up, that I think that Doc is a much more complicated character than, 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 he, than he appears to be on the surface. I think he is mm -hmm. more than just the goofball stoner that has a good one-liner now and again and kind of knockabouts from uh, scene to scene. I think that there is something darker and I think that there is something heavier that finally does get unleashed when the scab gets ripped off, ripped off in this sequence. Just as I think Shasta Faye 
I don't know if I'd call her femme fatale and we are going to get into that because I, <laughs> I don't quite know that she would be, although I think she, she begins with that archetype here. Mm-hmm. She is so much more complicated and dark than I think the, the modern appropriation of the term femme fatale allows for. That makes mm-hmm. any kind of sense. I see a very highly cocked eyebrow on your face right now that's getting higher get and it. higher and higher <laughs> as I talk. We're going to circle back that before we do, I got to ask, uh, how'd this play for you? Hi. Beautifully. I oh, felt yeah? like, okay. So I have a, I have a whole thing with watching movies high. I feel like it changes your experience of a movie in a lot of ways. You know, maybe I say that because there was this one time I got really high and I watched Species and I thought, oh my God. <laughs> First Species reference on the show. Hot damn. I know. I'm Bringing the heat tonight. It. Thank you. <laughs> just doing my job, man. Um, <laughs> film critic par excellence. Species. <laughs> Great movie. No. But I got so high and I was watching it. I was like, oh my God, I should remake this movie because this movie in somebody else's hands could actually be a really interesting study of femininity. It's almost there, but it's too interested in white women titties and like softcore porny sex scenes to really give a damn about anything dealing with gender. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's your that's your species exegesis, and I thank you for it. Sorry. Uh, no, don't be so. I was so excited that someone brought up species because you know I've been sitting here. All these lonely months doing this goddamn inherent vice show, just going, when's someone gonna bring up species? When are they gonna do it? When are I they mean, gonna do it? I mean, you know, we'll get into it, but Shasta is kind of to me, she's is not that she's not a femme fatale, it's that she exists as almost this other kind of female character that happens in noir a lot, where they blend but like both sides of the coin, the femme fatale and the angelic figure. I know Which exactly is, who you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, you know. You know what? Why the hell not? Let's 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 mention this now because you've written about that figure, and I'm gonna quote you again. How about that? Okay, How about that? Ahead. You know who I'm thinking of right now? I'm thinking of uh, a certain Alfred Hitchcock movie that you wrote a Criterion essay for called Notorious. And you wrote about Ingrid Bergman's character, Alicia. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to throw this out there because I love this. I loved this part of the essay. Alicia is in a class apart from Hitchcock's other blonde, iconic blondes. She eschews the patrician iciness of Grace Kelly, the painful yearning of Joan Fontaine, and the gleaming eroticism of Kim Novak. These women can be wanting, cutting, lovely, and even mired in obsessions of their own. But Alicia's supple vulnerability and mature sexiness are singular. In the 40s, Hollywood offered female audiences both escapism and a kind of satisfaction laced with a feminist ethos. It was the decade that gave the likes of the aggressive Betty Davis, the chameleonic Barbara Stanwyck, and the self-possessed Olivia de Havilland some of their most complex roles. There were the heartbreaking protagonists of women's pictures, shop girls on the make, bespectacled librarians, hungry spinsters. By 1946, the year Notorious was released, Hollywood was engulfed in the dark morass of film noir. 
noir predominantly offered two kinds of women. The femme fatale, powered by her desire for wealth, autonomy, and sex, who is so focused on herself that she doesn't heed the men she's destroying along the way. And also, the good-natured angel positioned to remind us of societal expectations. Alicia doesn't slip into either lineage. She is neither projection nor perfectly perfumed fantasy. The men who seek to determine her fate use her body as a weapon, believing her to be a femme fatale. But the film never loses sight of the fact that Alicia's truths are more complicated. From this angle, Notorious becomes a consideration of what happens when a woman's sexual history frames the totality of her identity. And that, is, that especially that last line, makes me think so much of Shasta Faye Hepworth and so much of how the two men in her life, vis-a-vis this film, view her life and her, and her role in theirs. Which is all of my really uh, uh, big attempt to interrupt your sentence with a bunch of sentences of yours to back up exactly what you were saying. <laughs> Thank you. Well, thank you, Pat. No, actually, thank me. Thank thank you. Thank Pat Angelica for yeah. her good essay. At Criterion. It is a good essay. Yeah, it's good. Great movie. art by Greg Ruth on the cover and, and oh, that, that cover. Yeah, it's really beautiful work. I'm really happy with how that one turned out. But that's that's Shaston, no, right? Oh, I mean, totally. If, if we're talking about the, you know, we started this off with my quote of uh, your myself quoting you about what I call the the sin of genealogy of the femme fatale, <laughs> and you know her her path from Barbara Stanwyck to uh, Gone Girl. I think you have to kind of follow a different trajectory for a character like Shasta Faye, who I think has her roots more in a character like Alicia in uh, Notorious, but also uh, another woman that I think of is Linda Darnell as Stella in Otto. Boy, something just happened to your face. You just lit I'm up. I'm a big Linda Darnell oh, fan. Oh, right, <laughs> That's right. Where I was like, ah, oh, where are we going? <laughs> Linda Darnell and Otto Primager's Fallen Angel, just trying yes. to find her place in all of this, going through some real deal shit to do so, just trying to stay on her two feet. And, you know, a little bit like I think Shasta does in this scene, if we want to get a little bit ahead and talk about interpretations, I feel like a big part of what Darnell is doing in Fallen Angel, which everybody should watch, uh, Mm -hmm. is she's always trying to tell and warn Dana Andrews's character, look, I am not the woman you think I am. This yeah. is what I am. You got to see how fucked up this is. You got to see how complicated this is. And you got to be willing to say that you're cool with those things because that is who I am. You know, I'm not quite like I'm I, like, you know, Dana Andrews is kind of not quite Madonna whore uh, complex, but he's, he's got a vision of who she is as someone that's mm-hmm. going to save him. Kind of like Doc yeah. does with Shasta. Yeah. And much like I think happens in this scene, I think that, without getting too deeply into spoilers that Linda Darnell's character, Stella in that film is basically saying, no, 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 this is what I am. This messed up, this messed up explosion of humanity in front of you. This is what I am. And you got to look, you got to look me dead in the eye and see how weird and ugly it can get. If you're going to roll with me. Yeah. And to me, uh, and I'm so, so I'm so glad 
that you began to lead us down this path, I think that her two antecedents, I think it's Ingrid Bergman in Notorious, and I think it's Linda Darnell in Fallen Angel. That's that's Shasta to me. Yeah, I think that's a really good point with Linda Darnell and Fallen Angel. I haven't thought about that movie in a while. I think I'm going to do a rewatch of it. You deserve it. You've I haven't it. watched it in years, but I love Linda Darnell, and it's a really good performance from her. Um, yeah, I think that's definitely a lineage that Shasta exists within. And I think, you know, the scene is really fascinating to me because of how it operates as a power play and how it feels a little sadomasochistic almost mm -hmm. in a way, uh, which is so noir. Like that's an undercurrent of noir sexual politics is this sort of intense power play and the push and pull. Who's in control. Yes, who's in control, who has the power is a consideration when it comes to desire and noir. So. You know, that's something that I feel the movie is really steeped in. There's also another character I would also suggest that exists in this lineage. Um, it's a far more minor character, but um, have you ever seen the um, Dan Duryea uh, film, um, The Burglar? It was on no. Criterion Channel uh -uh, for a I minute. Um, I wrote about it for Vulture when talking about rape scenes in cinema. Mm -hmm. um and so there's like a rape scene early uh in the film with oh my god this is gonna bother me so hold up let me bring this up because if i it's someone who is so jane mansfield is in it it's like one of her really like early pictures and she plays dan Terrier's like sort of not quite sister but they were raised like he raised yeah raise her um but they have weird sexual tension. It's very strange. Um, but there's a minor character in the in the movie played by Martha Vickers, who has a very interesting monologue. I love Martha Vickers. Yeah, she had a crush a, on her since Big Sleep. Can't help she's it. She's so good in the Big Sleep. Um, and she's really good in this. And it's a small role, but she has this monologue to Dan Duryea about like how she's been used and abused by men and how she's had to navigate it. And I really thought of Shasta and like how she's goading, if she's goading, like, I don't know, you can look at it in multiple ways, like her, her speech in this scene. And I've kind of gone back and forth between what she's trying to do and what she's trying to get out of Doc. Um, so I'm kind of interested in like your perspective on that. Because for me, you know, rewatching it today while I was high, <laughs> I I was really struck by the sadness behind what she was saying. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like she's goading him into a violent reaction that she knows exists within him because she feels that punishment is what she deserves. Jesus Christ, that's good. That's really good. This is why you're on the show. You realize this. <laughs> you know what? You know what we ought to do? What? Me and you, we're going to watch this, and then we're going to talk about it in depth. We're going to quit tiptoeing around. We need, yeah. we need to dive right in. So we'll be right back. We're going to talk about this. <laughs> Is 
kind of girl do you need, Doc? Maybe a thing for one of those Manson chicks? Well, thing is that uh, depends on what uh, are you sure you want to be doing that. Submissive, brainwashed, horny little teeners who do exactly what you want before you even know what that is. You don't have to say a word out loud. They get it all by ESP. You kind of chick, Doc? You're the one that's been stealing my magazines. What would Charlie do? Well, probably not this. Sorry about Mickey. Huh, Mickey. Mickey could have told all you swinging beach bums a thing or two. Yeah, he was just so powerful. Sometimes he could almost make you feel invisible. Nice to be made to feel invisible that way sometimes. Hmm. Ah, guys just love to hear shit like this. micro mini dresses never allowing me to wear anything underneath just offering me up to whoever wanted to stare ground 
sometimes. He fixed me off with some of his friends, and I'd have to do whatever they wanted. Wait, wait. Oh, I'm sorry, Doc. You want me to stop? to be the bottom sold or some scumbag developer. I'd just be so angry, I don't know what I'd do. No. I'm even lying about that, I know what I'd do. I had to face this little bitch over my lap like this. Doesn't mean we're back together. Of course not. You didn't get this necklace up north from me. I went on a boat ride. Mm. Like a three hour tour? They told me I was precious cargo that couldn't be insured because of inherent vice. What's that? So, last thing I'm going to say before we dive into this sequence proper, last thing I'm going to ask, rather, what do you make of Shasta Faye? What is Shasta Faye? That's a big question. Let's, you know what? Yeah, that's the first thing I want to do. Let's just knock this one out. Is she a femme fatale to you? Does she begin as one? Does she end as one? Is she ever one to you? Because the film positions her as such in that opening sequence. And then... 
That is true. Something happens. And I'm curious, who is Shasta Faye Hepworth to you? So there's this really, <laughs> Shasta Faye sort of reminds me of this really great movie with Barbara Stanwyck called Clash by Night. Have you ever by seen night, it? I have. It's really good. And, you know, Barbara Stanwyck plays this character who comes back from the big city to her small, like, you know, town near the sea. And you can tell she's lived a life. And that in that in that other life, she would probably be seen as a femme fatale. Mm -hmm. But here's the rest of her story. That's kind of how Shasta is for me. Like, it's like, yes, this may be someone who at first blush could exist as a femme fatale, could seem like a femme fatale, but let's kind of take the mask off and see who this woman really is beyond an archetype. So yes and no is <laughs> my answer. <laughs> yes and no. And that yes and no, and that kind of the straddling of both, which is so evocative of the film's tone in general, which is because the film, you know, it's not hard-boiled noir, as I said, it's soft-boiled noir, but it's a noir, but then it's not. It's, it's a crime film, but then it's a, it's, it's a film that's really not all that interested in the crime to begin with. And I feel like, similarly, you know, what's, what's the, that's the great line in the trailer about Doc. Doc ain't a do-gooder, but he did, he's done good. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, Shasta, she should be our femme fatale, but she's not. And what I think is so great about her is, as you rightly put it, in, in your piece with Brightwall about the femme fatale, the femme fatale began as a far more complex, far more complex creature than what uh, she's become in modern neo-noir. And what I, what I think is interesting about Shasta is you can't quite call her a femme fatale, partially because I think she out-complexes the complex femme fatales of old. She is operating on another level of mysteriousness, mm-hmm. which I think mm-hmm. is appropriate because this entire film is couched from Doc's POV. This is his way. That's why the film is so confusing is because Doc mm-hmm. is confused. But I also think the reason why Shasta Faye kind of threads in and out and is never totally known, I don't think Doc knows exactly. Shasta Faye. He loves Shasta Faye. I don't question his love for her. For her. Uh, I don't question his willingness to go to the limit and do anything for her. But I don't know that he knows this woman. He doesn't. I think he has, he has an idea that he knows intimately, mm-hmm. obsessively, and, and lovingly, but it is not Shasta Faye Hepworth. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, um, there's an interesting uh, layering in the soundtrack of this film, the actual proper released record, which is the first time, there's three versions of Shasta's theme. And the first version is called Shasta. It plays at the beginning of the film. The second uh, variation on the theme is called Shasta Fay. It plays in the middle. And then in this final scene here, it, there's the third variation. It's called Shasta Fay Hepworth. It's a slow kind of peeling of the onion. And that is what, it's a minor part of the film in terms of screen time. But that to me is so much of what this film is about, is peeling back the layers of this onion and recognizing not only is the film about nostalgia and this thing that you miss so fucking desperately, but it's also kind of the horror, 
of the revelation that you didn't really know the thing. And I think that there's a, there's an element of that to the book. I think a lot of the book is Pinchon through doc going, God, all of the cultural rot that brought down the sixties, every, it, it wasn't the deaths of all of our leaders that ended the sixties. It was the forces in play that enacted that shit was in the bloodstream long before the 1960s. The death knell was already cast decades, if not centuries, before the 60s even happened. And that was our failure is we didn't see it coming. We never saw it coming. The stuff that hit us hard in those days, that was, that was predestined almost. The, 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 the dominoes had already started falling a long time ago and we didn't see it. And I think the horror in the film is that same idea but contextualized as a romantic relationship and the, the realization of i didn't know this woman mm -hmm. i really i had an idea of this woman in a country joe and the fish t-shirt in the bottom half of a flower print bikini that's that's who i knew that's who i saw but that's not who shasta Faye is or at least that's it's one part of her but that's not all of her it's just the part it's the only part that doc lets himself see and that is my very long-winded way of getting to what you were talking about before we watched the scene which is you know you said you were kind of interested you know what what do i have to say about this like how do i view this sequence that's there's a million places to start um but i would like to start with some of the possible interpretations. And I think the first and the one that for me is ultimately easiest to dismiss before I get to mine is that this is not happening, is that this is a hallucination. Yeah, that's um, boring. <laughs> well, that's my point. The films are, yes, the film has established this kind of elastic relationship with reality from Doc and yeah. Sorley to Bigfoot Bjornsson talking to Doc through the tube. And there is an oddness to this scene. Uh, with Shasta Faye showing up the way Doc did always remember her. Country Joe in the fish shirt, bottom half of a flower print bikini. She does show up exactly as sort of describes Doc's memory of her. Mm. And so I could see for a second. And because again, um, the oddness of this scene, the strangeness of it, the, the kind of arrhythmic tonality compared to the rest of the film. The first time I saw it, you know, in the, in the book, it just happens. It just happens yeah. and it does not feel any different from the rest of the book. Uh, this is one of the, the, the rare moments where the book version is not darker than the film version. This is a far darker sequence in the film, a far moodier and kind of scarier sequence in the film. Mm. And I initially viewed this as Doc, this is Doc having some kind of like masturbatory fantasy about Shasta Faye, the Shasta Faye that he wants to remember. But all of the things that he's learned about Shasta throughout the film, her relationship with Mickey, uh, her relationship to the Golden Fang, and possibly being even the force that sucked in Owen Wilson's character into the Fang. His insecure, his kind of toxic insecurities and fears about, how Shasta, about who Shasta might really be infect this fantasy that he's trying to have. And it, drives it to take the dark turn that he does that was the first thing i was wondering when i was watching this movie and that is my second very long-winded introduction into saying what i think happened which is i think it's a little i think it's close to what you said um although i didn't i did not have the really fucking ace suggestion or revelation that perhaps that she is almost trying to enact 
a form a masochistic form of self-punishment for what she's done but i did view this scene almost as her showing up dressed the way she knows doc thinks of Mm -hmm. her and immediately trying to fuck it up in a weird way to maybe not save them and save their relationship but like maybe almost she loves him i i I do believe that she loves him the way that she the way that she cries when she drives away at the beginning when he asks her if she wants to stay and she just says i have to go watch your toes yeah i do feel like god doesn't that kill watch your toes watch your toes but i feel like she's literally and figuratively stripping away layers saying no 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 you gotta look at me man like you think i'm just this carefree casual chick from play vista high you know what's what's uh, sort of leash say at the beginning of the film uh time was back in the day doc couldn't conceive of shasta fey having anything more complicated than a pout yes i loved that line because it said so much about their relationship and it said like multiple things because it's it's like oh he that's an image he has of her that Mm -hmm. that's not a whole that can never be a whole person a person is will always be more complicated than a pout maybe pout yeah. yeah, you're just seeing a fucking pout, dude. Like, <laughs> God, like, have I dated this guy before? <laughs> um, no, but that that's such a great line to bring up. But because it, it evokes so much because, it, A, it shows that he's doing that thing where he's looking back at the past and seeing and envisioning it as being mm-hmm. rosier than it was and less mm-hmm. complicated because it's him going you know back then she the, the worst that she would ever have is a pout a mid-afternoon pout if she felt bad about something like him remembering it as back then things were so much better back then things were so much easier the way it's easier easy i think for Pinchon's doc to go man when the 60s men things were so much easier than, than they are in 1970 so much better pta's doc i think does the same thing vis-a-vis shasta Fay. man back then it was just so much easier and, but I think it also shows, again, and an inability to recognize a deeper Shasta Fay at that time. That we, as a, as Sorlige then goes on to say, now she was laying a combination of facial ingredients on Doc that he couldn't even recognize. Mm-hmm. That's a very, very gorgeous Pinchonian line of dialogue that is basically saying, this woman's complexity is beyond our hero. Mm-hmm. she's she's going through something that is beyond his ability to comprehend her going through yeah and that to me i'm not trying to talk shit on my man doc i love him but i do think that you know if he's our flawed hero it is that he has an idealized shasta Fay, the way the book doc has an idealized 1960s and he can't see past the ideal the the ideal has a combination of facial ingredients that are just too complicated for him to recognize and too yeah. complicated for him to envision her being capable of having. Yeah. And I feel like so much of this scene is him saying, don't you see what you really want? You want one of those Manson girls, one of those girls that knows what you want before you do, that will, yeah. you know, rub your feet, kiss your feet. In the book, she like actually kisses his feet, which is still somehow not darker than uh, the sequence. <laughs> but to me, to, to, to keep going in these circles that I'm going in, to me, this is her saying, when, when, when she goes into her speech about her relationship with Mickey, and 
to be honest, she seems quite turned on talking about mm-hmm. that. Like she's literally, I mean, it's, they, they, they play it somewhat coy because it's, it's not unrated, uh, but she's touching herself before she even begins to touch Doc. Yeah. And she's aroused by the idea of being taken into this, these cold Beverly Hills bars with, with almost no lighting and being shared with Mickey's friends and being paraded in micro mini skirts. And she has that, that one line that always sticks with me uh, when she goes, boy, Mickey, he could show you swinging beach bums a thing or two. There's, mm. There is a feeling of like longing and this talking about wanting to be made to feel invisible. Mm. There does seem to, she's, I think she's kind of admitting, you know, yeah, I have an attraction to degradation and I, there, there is something there for me, or at least there is a part of me that responds to that. And that, I feel a big part of this scene is her saying, I need you to see that this is who I am, much like Linda Darnell in Fallen Angel. So to me, when I watch this sequence, I think it is, I think it's a woman that's deep, that is is in love with this man, that cares about this man, but is almost trying to, very much the way Femme Fatale would, weaponize her sexuality in a way that forces a mirror in front of him to see what he really wants and to see mm-hmm. what how he behaves when he's pushed to his breaking point, to his, to the breaking point of his insecurities and his sexuality and his feelings of propriety towards her. Mm-hmm. I think that he, she is intentionally forcing him to that snapping point. And I think you see it, you know, you talk about the eroticism and, and, and uh, nature of power play in sex and film noir, the way that this is struck, the way this is visually structured where he is almost like pressed flat against the couch mm-hmm. and she looms above him mm-hmm. in total focus as his edges be- dissolve more and more out of focus. Mm-hmm. And she's almost just crushing him with her words and the weight of her sexuality and the weight of, of her, of her, of her wants. And yeah, I think that this is in a weird way. I think she's doing this for both of them. I think she's doing it for her to say, look at this look at me i agree but also saying look at you so that you can stop fucking looking at me this way i for both of us see me for who i am before you make any fucking more decisions with your life about mine that's my speech angelica that is my speech about this scene (laughs) now now come at me come back let's let's hear what you got okay well i i pretty much agree with you i think I think Shasta is very cognizant of how Doc views the world or more specifically how he views her. Yeah. And I think that's something she's playing with um, within the film, within this moment. And also what really struck me, you know, you brought up like the visual aspect of how, of the blocking and how she's positioned and looming over him. I also was really struck by how the camera really focuses on her face during the sex scene. Like once they get physical together and she's like pushed against the couch, it's her face that makes us understand the emotional and physical dimensions of what this act is and how complicated it is. Because one thing that's really striking is that you know, I think her sadness even comes through during the sex. It's like, it does, is, this, yeah. is this really pl- 
like are you touching the hem of pleasure or is it pain that you're getting from this and that's what you're seeking again i keep going back to the sadomasochistic aspects of noir and of this scene and 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 thinking of you know usually you know in noir obviously in classic noir you know titties are not out and people are not touching themselves <laughs> last time i checked it's a little some explicit stuff. little explicit yeah. yeah it's a little bit more explicit than that you know so usually this you know the power play comes in dialogue and so what's interesting also about the scene is just you know how passive doc is until he is not anymore yes and that switch is very fascinating to me and what it takes to break that passivity yeah and, but also but also what that unleashes in him you know i think this discussion of this scene rightly orbits this massive gravity well of Shasta Faye Hepworth. But I think that a lot of the act is intended to drive Doc towards something. Not to make it all mm -hmm. about Doc, not to make it mm -hmm. all about the dude. But I, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to do that, but I do think that that is a part of the act. I think oh, that, totally. that, that there's, there is definitely, there's definitely agency in this act and that this, there is something there is a massive something here for Shasta that she is going through something that she is achieving something, whether that's pain, whether that's pleasure, she's achieving something for herself. But I do think there is something to push doc here. And it is, and it is fascinating to see what does finally erupt from him, which is understandable arousal. The woman he loves is naked next to him on a couch, but also yeah specifically sometimes i'm I, I wonder like not to get super well not to get super into doc's head what the fuck is this isn't it this is a in, inherent vice podcast but this is exactly why we're here part of me wonders like what's he getting off on here is is, is there a, and that is is there a record this we're gonna get weird we're gonna get therapist couch with this is there a recognition of his impulses in her description of mickey's propriety of her is there a recognition of his darkest impulses? The way once Mickey starts using drugs, he starts coming in contact with something that's positive, that's something kind of doc-like. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he says, I want to give everything away for free. I, I didn't realize housing was supposed to be for free. Are you listening? Uh, uh, anyone running for president? No. <laughs> I, I, I didn't realize that housing was supposed to be for free. And if you, if you, if you recall, doc is someone that never really ends up charging anyone for his services. And so it's interesting that Shasta Faye can sometimes be this, this pivot point or fulcrum. And it, I do think that there is a, a crossing of paths between Mickey and Doc in that for a period, for a period before the Fang finally gets a hold of him, Mickey kind of becomes a little Doc-like. And in this sequence, I think Doc becomes a little Mickey-like. And... You could look at that in a million different ways. Maybe the point of that is to say, hey, you know, we're all we're all one bad day away from joining the Golden Fang and just putting up our, you know, as, as we've watched so many of, uh, you know, family and friends do over the past four years with our real world Golden Fang, it's really easy to get pushed to a point where you're like, you know what, I'm just going to side with them. It makes my life mm -hmm. easier. Why not? Mm -hmm. And I wonder if there's something that there or if it's just simply, as I said, that maybe Doc kind of gets off on the idea of that control that, that, that Shasta was under and that 
he would never admit it and he would never break his passivity to actually kind of do that you know take her by the arm and lead her around and tell her to wear the micro mini dress or in his case tell her to wear the country joe and the fish tee and the bottom half of the flower print bikini but i do think there's maybe a recognition that that's in there that that, that, that he would never act on it because he is a good guy that, that he does love her that he is our hero but that throb is there and that a big part of this act for shasta was to bring that to the surface so that he could recognize it I agree. I think you're making some really great observations there. I think, you know, what bursts forth from him is a possessiveness. Because it's interesting, like, you know, how her speech kind of ebbs and flows until she finally starts saying, you know, if my girlfriend ran off and became you know, the whore to some developer and she just, you know, and that seems to kind of push him over the edge. And I find that really interesting because at the beginning of the scene, she asks him, you know, when, you know, she comes in, you know, we see his reaction before we see her naked, which yeah. I love. I love that. And his chuckle, it's, it's such a great moment and also notice his hands immediately go to cover I his crotch know. like to protect himself <laughs> not just to hide that he's that he's getting aroused but it's almost like i'm i've got to protect myself from whatever laser beam is coming out of her eyes and hitting me right here yeah yeah it's such an interesting moment but she said she asked him what kind of girl do you need doc and i think that sort of frames the scene in a very interesting way and sort of pushes at the question, you know, we were sort of circling earlier about who she really is, both to him and to herself. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that, I think that the troubling answer to that question, or troubling for Doc, troubling for them as a couple, is I, I, I do think that, and this is so much simpler than my big soliloquy I went, I went on, but I think that part of what she's trying to to get him to recognize is, hey, maybe you just don't want me. Maybe you yeah. need to recognize that you don't want me. I get that you love me, and I love you too. And we did have a good time together. But what kind of girl do you need, Doc? Yeah. Maybe, maybe you need. We're making a joke out of it with you know, you know, what would Charlie Manson do? But maybe you do just kind of want someone who's a little bit more, just gonna go with the flow going to hang back, not going to be more complicated than a pout, or at least not to you, or isn't going to care that she's yeah. not more complicated to a pout to you. But I am more complicated than a pout. I am someone with an extraordinary cascade of complicated desires that are all, that, that snap you, that break you, that, that are beyond your understanding. You've been chasing me this whole fucking movie as if I'm part of some great mystery. No, I went on the thing because I wanted to go. I would, and I think ultimately that's a, that's something that can be easily missed is Shasta was never, this whole movie, or at least Doc's involvement in it is predicated on the idea that Shasta is in need of rescue, that she has been kidnapped. And the more nefarious we learn the more uh, that we, excuse me, the more we learn that the Golden Fang is this nefarious force that is just eating away, that is the moral rot that is destroying all things and has been destroying all things, 
this whole film, Doc has been chasing her as someone who needs to be rescued, someone who needs to be saved. And I feel like this is the moment in which she breaks that spell and is trying to say, dude, I went on a three-hour tour because I wanted to. Mm-hmm. I went with Mickey on the boat because I wanted to. I'm wearing the same necklace as Puck Beaverton, the man who's wearing me naked on his tie because I wanted to. These are things I want. These are things I want to do. And that is a woman that you are incapable of recognizing. It was beyond you to recognize that I never needed saving. It was beyond your ability to see that I had never been kidnapped. But because you could not understand me, because you could not recognize me, you literally had to believe I had been forcibly abducted to understand how I could end up on the, the SS Golden Fang. And that's such a big component to, I think, their relationship. And to this scene is saying, is saying, see me as someone who didn't need to be saved. See me as someone who didn't get kidnapped. And that is where I think we realize how leftward from film noir this film goes, is it mm-hmm. uses that film noir vocabulary of the woman who needs to be rescued. It uses that and our expectations of it so that we are just as floored and confused and brain broken as Doc is in this scene. Because I think for those who are paying attention and aren't so overwhelmed by the darkness of this moment, you go, oh, fuck. She was fine the whole time. I mean, not fine. She's clearly been through some shit. <laughs> yeah. But, but like, she she wasn't a lost girl. She wasn't a damsel in distress. There was yeah, no dragon attacking her. made of glass. No. Yeah. No. And I do think she's gone through some things that have made her harder than glass. I think that is a part of her story. And there's a bit more backstory in the book where she was kind of the girl off the bus that wanted to become the actress. And that story goes the way it goes for a lot of people that just never make it. But yeah, so much of this film to me is saying no, or not this film. So much of this scene to me is going, no, this is not a film noir. This is not a film noir. I'm not a film fatale. And like you said in your essay about uh, Notorious, I'm not a femme fatale, but I'm also not the angel. I'm just, yeah. what's what's the great line from Eternal Sunshine? Uh, I'm, you know, I'm just a fucked up chick. Like, yeah. I, 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 that's not the exact line, but you know, she's like, look, I'm just a fucked up chick trying to make my way through life, man. Yeah. Like, I'm not here to be saved. I'm not here to save you. Yeah. I'm just trying to get through the goddamn day. Like, Linda, she's like, that's Linda, and that, which is Linda, Gar- Linda Darnell, the fallen angel, which is like, dude. I'm not here to save you. I'm I'm barely making rent. I'm slinging burgers. Get <laughs> yeah, off. Get like, off. Come man. on, dude. Like, don't you see me in this cafe? I'm <laughs> tired after work. Then I gotta deal with your ass. Ugh. That's how I would have said it. You'd, you'd say that. You'd say that to Dana Andrews. Come on. Yeah. No, he's not my flavor. I'm no. not a part of the Dana. I mean, I like him as an actor, but like, he's not on my like time travel fuck list. <laughs> I don't know. If I'm more excited about you saying you got egregiously high, referenced species, or dropped time travel fuck list into the increment vice vocabulary. I don't know which makes me happier, but I am very happy right now. I have to tell you that. Just trying to keep things spicy, you know, give give people a little bit of everything they need. They want some intellectual discussion. We've given them that. We're giving them some humor. And now you got to put a little heat on it. You put a little pepper on it. Why not? This is an episode about eroticism, right? It is. And we have to get into these kind of weird areas. You kind of have to. It is like a, it's a scene that makes you uncomfortable for a reason. Extraordinarily so. But again, that's the point. It should Mm -hmm. make, you know, I was, you know, I, I was getting into an argument with a friend. 
um, the, the, and this is it's going to be some weird territory to get into, but why not? Because we're talking about eroticism. I was talking to a friend the other day about uh, the rape revenge genre. Mm. And he was saying, I can't watch those movies. And I, and I was like, well, why not? And he's like, well, because I, depictions of on-screen sexual assault are too uncomfortable to me. I don't like to see that. And I was like, well, yeah, that, that's the idea is like, you're not supposed to sit there and like be slapping your knee laughing or something like that's it's supposed to be difficult what's weirder is that you watch you know 80 people get decapitated in a movie and then you do you feel nothing like Mm -hmm. it's kind of the point you should stay uncomfortable and this sequence feels so much like that to me not that there's any form of assault in this sequence but just that where you can't quite find the the right position to sit in when you're watching, you keep shifting yeah. left because there is something so, there is such an ugliness to this sequence. And uh, that's, it's one of the first things that when the reviews of this film first hit, this was kind of the divining rod, if you loved mm-hmm. it or if you hated it. You know, I, I, the Washington Post published something where they defined, they gave it a glowing, the film a glowing review and centered on this moment as this bra-bra erotic set piece. But then Entertainment Weekly, uh, that same week, dropped a review saying that this moment is a gratuitous and, out, and it is out of place. And it makes the movie skid to a what-the-fuck halt. I think I know the answer based on how your eyebrows danced just now when I said that. But I think you like this scene. And I yeah. think you... I think you but, you like the scene, but let me ask you this. Does this scene fit into the tapestry of the film to you? Does this feel does this feel like we talk about this movie or that we you mentioned that how this scene and Shasta's dialogue, especially it, it ebbs and flows. I think Inherent Vice ebbs and flows. Is the, does this fit into the ebb and flow of Inherent Vice? You might like the scene specific, but does it fit into the movie for you? Yeah, I think it totally does. It doesn't it, feel jarring to me at all. It feels almost like you know the scene with them and the rain and the memory of it all and sort of looking back it feels like that scene is a question if this scene is an answer to it oh god that's why you're angelica j didn't it jesus yeah 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 (laughs) no that's so right and this film feels like it has two emotional climaxes to or two climaxes to it an emotional climax and a plot climax mm-hmm. i feel like the plot climax is the resumption and reconfiguring of the family harlingen it's about getting owen wilson back it's about doing one good thing yeah uh which is my one of my all-time favorite my favorite part of any detective movie is when the our our tarnished hero decides i'm gonna risk it all i'm gonna do one goddamn good thing that, that, that Shane Black moment of like, you know what, I'm going I'm to I'm screw up, but I'm going to do this one thing right. And whatever comes of that, comes of that, but I'm going to do mm. one thing right. That's the plot climax to me in this film. But this to me is the emotional climax. Mm. And I feel like without this, what comes next in this film is impossible. I think that in this scene, and again, I'm not saying this because this is all in service of Doc. I don't think that this act between Doc and Shasta is all in service of him, but I do think it is the thing that pushes him. 
I think that this is the moment where he actually comes face to face with who he is. And in the book, I think it's him coming face to face with the counterculture's com- the, their complicity in what went wrong mm-hmm. and their in- inability to stop it. And I think in the film, it's him saying, it's him recognizing that the end, whatever the end of he and Shasta's relationship was, which is relatively nonspecific, that he is probably the root cause of that. That there is something in him, there is a there is an obsessiveness and a need to try to control a situation to his liking that drove this woman away. And I think that he both recognizes that as a flaw, but I think that he tries to make something good of it. And I maybe I'm really reaching here, but I do feel like that is kind of what pushes him in this final act is I have these aspects of myself that are not good or or can be very, very perverted into something wrong. But I can use those same instincts to do this one good thing. I can use that that drive to want to control a situation, to want to put my hands on the situation and guide it and maybe do one thing right. I don't know. What do you think? Am I going somewhere with this? Or do you think I'm just, this is just floating off the top of my head? You're kind of floating a little I'm bit. floating a little bit. You're not, you're not buying it? You're floating a little bit. But I, I'm still digging your wavelength. i don't know how else to put it Um, oh god i wish i read the book now because like i i'm so curious now like hearing how you know you talk about it about some of these differences especially in like the mood i'm curious so much of the book is colder and Mm. darker and far more bitter than this film there is a there's that there's that rye pta sweetness to this film you know that moment you know that moment like you didn't just watch the you know that moment at the end of the movie when doc looks into the light and he kind of smiles that feels Mm -hmm. like pta smiling at us through doc it's always felt like that's a very pta moment because well do you I, i can spoil the end of the book for you yeah of course go ahead doc drives alone doc drives away alone and he's by himself He's driving in the fog, hoping, hoping that it will burn away and something different will be there this time. And of course, since we, we have the benefit of hindsight, we know that the, that's not how the 60s end. That's not how the 70s begin. Nothing better is in when that fog yeah. burns back. There's nothing, there's nothing good left. But the book ends with him by himself and Shasta's gone. And that's, I feel like that ending, that final scene is a good way of contrasting the two. It is a caustically bitter, very, very funny, but caustically bitter, angry look back mm-hmm. by a man who is saying emphatically with every word of the book exactly what Captain America says in Easy Rider. We blew it. We blew it. This is on us. It's not Nixon. It's not the forces of evil. They were, forces of evil are always going to be there. It's on us. Yeah. We fucked up because we didn't fight them the right way. We didn't recognize them the right way. And they were so ingrained in the way things were in a way that we never even conceived of. We think, oh, it started with Kennedy when he got shot. No, no. the tracks were, were in place so, so much earlier than that. And we never tried to stop them because we couldn't see it. That is the book. The film is far kind of more emotional, more warmer. Totally. But what is fascinating is the one inverse of that is the sequence in which it's far more comic. It's far more comic and it's far faster in the book. It's like, it happens and it's done and there's a lot more jokes and it's just it's breezy 
it's it's kind of just something that not, nothing in a pinch on novel is just something that happens, but it feels a little bit like something that just happens. Mm. Whereas as as we've been talking, this is a this is a scene whether you love it or you hate it. This is a movie that this is a scene that stops the fucking movie cold, and maybe that's a good thing for you. I like it. You like it too. There's a lot of people that hate it, but it stops the movie cold, and that it's the only time in this film that the film feels not just like the book, but so much darker than the book, so much more despairing than the mm. book and so much more frightening than the book can be. And that is it's the one time those things get inverted. And I think again, it's, it's, it's one of those, it's one of the reasons why so many people, this is the moment that sticks in their throat and they can't take the film. They can't, this is that's where it loses them completely. Like, you know, I'm trying, I'm trying to understand this goddamn movie where the, the plot doesn't seem to be the point. The mystery doesn't seem to be the point. I thought the plot was going to be that Shasta disappeared. Then I thought it was going to be whatever the hell was going on with Mickey. Now it's apparently about this stoner uh, junkie who left his wife and his kid. Now he wants back. Is that the movie? I don't know, but I maybe. But now what is the sex scene then? If, that, if that's what the movie is supposed to be. Not seeing that I think so much of this scene is calling to question what all the characters in this movie do which is fetishize what was mm -hmm. fetishize what was and maybe the fact that they never quite saw clearly that thing that they're fetishizing and that is that is where you risk downfall and that is where you risk that's so true that's where you risk entropy the entropy entropy that broke the counterculture mm -hmm. uh the entropy that took over the malaise that took over the 70s you know you're, you're spending so much time thinking remember when that you can't fight the future mm. and i again that's why i think in a way this is a weirdly a, a an attempt to be a beneficial act for doc on shasta's part but i also i love what you said which i i, I do think that there is maybe a, maybe a feeling of self-loathing or anger or rage mm -hmm. and Shasta is almost trying to enact her own punishment. Maybe it's maybe I don't know. Maybe it's because I was raised Catholic. Uh, but it almost seems like she's tr now that you've said it, I'm not going to be able to get it out of my head that this is her almost desiring some form of punishment. Maybe it's the pain that she's looking for rather than the pleasure because this does not seem like a fun a fun romp. No, it's not a fun sex scene. It's not, you know, the actual sexual act is is kind of rough and and they're not even facing each other they it's don't faceless. kiss yeah it's very it's it's not like you know the ideal you would expect to play out if it was just playing out in doc's head in my yeah. mind yeah you know what i mean and he does he becomes literally faceless the, the, this gets this mm -hmm. wall of curly brown hair that exactly. falls over his face and like you said the only face we sh we see is shasta's and my god there's some shit going on on her face a combination of facial ingredients far more complicated than a pout which is a, mix a mixture of pleasure and pain and you know what always gets me is when it's mm. over and they're both just kind of spent and breathing and laying there the tiniest tear that comes out of her eye and rolls mm. down her nose and I, but in pure in, in true Shasta Fay fashion, she has the lip curl of a smile as she's crying, yeah. and she says, and she says, 
this doesn't mean we're back together, which in the book is just said in this moment. Mm. And I, but and well, another thing I love about the movie is how it becomes the callback in the ending. This, this, yeah. this, this moment reaches into that ending to return. And that look on Shasta's face, that is this scene to me, the lip curl of a smile, a little bit of a joke, but also a tear running down her nose so that I we're talking about it right now. We've been talking about it for over an hour. I still don't know that I know what's going on here. I still don't know if I believe a hard set thing. And that's kind of the magic of it. That's kind of what makes this amazing is that I can watch this movie five years from now, although you, you can bet your ass I'll be watching it five days from now, but I can be watching this movie five years from now and this moment's going to mean something completely different between whatever happens to me between now and then. If there is a then, let's let's knock wood that, that we're still here. Ooh, the face you just made. But um, yeah, are you going to get a drink? Do you need to get a drink for that? Um, Where's my weed? Uh, uh. <laughs> but everything, whatever's going to happen between now and then, this scene might mean something completely different to me because it's it's designed to, it's allowed to. And maybe ultimately that's the point is that there doesn't have to be a point. Exactly. I think this the entire movie is sort of, you know, I think leaving a really good amount of space for what the viewer brings to it, which is why mm-hmm. I like it a lot. And I think, you know, depending on your relationship with the ideas at play and how desire sort of ebbs and flows throughout the movie and is intertwined with nostalgia and an inability to see people clearly, you know, that will shape your understanding of this scene and what's going on in it. And I think there's, I think there's multiple things going on with Shasta, which is why this, this scene lends itself to so many different readings. Exactly. It makes me think of this, uh, this line, totally unrelated film, makes me think of um, the press cycle for Before Midnight and Linklater was doing press for Before Midnight. And someone said, uh, what do you want them to take away from this movie? He's like, well, you know, if, uh, if you're someone who's coming to this movie and you're part of a couple that's breaking up, you're going to see that in this. And you're going to see all the reasons why you want to break up. And you're going to see all the reasons why you should break up. Uh, if you're being dumped, you're going to see all the reasons why you're probably getting dumped. They're all right here. But if you're, if you're going to this movie as someone who's in love or wants to be in love or believes in love, you're going to see all the reasons why you'd fight for that. You're going to see all the reasons why you want that, why you want to be a part of that. Like it's, it's really, it's designed so that it, it reverberates with what you need it to. It becomes mm-hmm. what the thing that you need to see in that moment. And without giving too much credit to the, to the artists here, I, I do think that this scene and I, I think you could say that this speaks for the whole film. It's designed to be what you need it to be when you're watching it. If you want this mm-hmm. to be a political polemic about how something golden taints everything in this goddamn world, when we have a president who literally has a home base and a golden tower in New York, there's a lot of parallels here. If this just needs to be a story about how easy it is to feel lonely and separated from everyone else and looking out the window remembering when you used to be able to touch someone with ease it can be about that or maybe it's just about how you really are in love with someone and you know that you're a little fucked up and you're trying to work it out so it's amazing about inherent vices it could be all of those things it could be none of those things it could, be, it could just be a basic ass although 
I'd really be interested in who thinks of this, a basic ass film noir about a guy chasing a missing girl. If you want it to be, but if, if you're thinking that you're probably fast forwarding through this scene and not paying enough attention to it. Yeah. I can't see that sort of reading. I know, but Hey, I was on a roll. What what, what can I tell you? I was talking. It happens. (laughs) It happens. On that note, I have to say that this has been so much fucking fun. <laughs> it, you know, it's weird to say that about this scene. I didn't know how, I didn't know if we were going to come out of this feeling heavy. But I feel like we're feeling pretty light right now. I feel like we feel yeah. pretty good with this scene. I think we feel pretty good with Doc and Shasta. Before we wrap things up, I, I want to know, though, I want to know one thing from you. Doc and Shasta. We've seen how this movie ends. Mm-hmm. This don't mean don't mean they're back together. What happens with these two? Like what happens to these two in your ending? Where do they go? Where do they go like after that for last real, scene? For real? Yeah, well, for real, for real. What happens? Do they stay together? They they split off? No, they don't stay together. Oh, no, even something. Come on. I'm sorry. I know. I'm, I know. I'm, Bitter, okay. I am single during a pandemic. Do you want to know how dating is during a pandemic? It sucks. (laughs) It's weird. You wear a mask and you meet at parks or you go for walks. And that's like it. Like, because I'm not getting COVID, okay? I'm very strict about what's going on in my life. Uh, I'm not. I'm not playing with this. It's a pandemic. This. Oh my God. This shit's so scary. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh my God. This. This. So. I wish people could see my face as my eyes got wider and wider. As like, oh my. We're we're going full on pandemic talk now. We went. I know. Full, I'm like, sorry, but the horror like... music starts to play. Oh, and now I'm I'm gonna have an anxiety attack because like, <laughs> I'm recording this from an office. I'm gonna have to walk by people on my way out to my car. <laughs> <laughs> you just screamed so loud you shorted out your mic that's incredible. oh my god I oh, did. there you go there you're back you're back there Oops. we go <laughs> but seriously it's just it's scary out there so you know i was don't make it they don't make it i'm sorry like but then at the same time you know you know people kind of sometimes come into your life for just a season and that doesn't make a relationship any less beautiful no no absolutely not that's in some ways that's what makes it more beautiful is that it's not going to last it's it's finite and that makes it where we're getting we're getting we're getting very dorm room stoner pretentious here you're gonna have to throw on the doors in the background but oh god no yeah uh but (laughs) <laughs> that's kind of what makes something precious is 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 that it's not going to last that it's going to be something fragile that it's going to be something that ends and then you do treasure it more although i think that's so much of what this is about is how mm. that's a, that that can that can be a tricky slippery slope because then you begin to fetishize the thing that ended as being perfect it wasn't perfect it was just it was just beautiful but it wasn't perfect and it need maybe it needed to end Maybe yeah. part of its it, maybe part of its nature is that it needed to come to a stop. Totally. That, and that might make it beautiful, but it doesn't make it perfect, and it doesn't make it something that needs to be permanent. And maybe ultimately, more than anything else, that feeling is what Shasta is trying to convey. That what we had, maybe it was beautiful, maybe it was complicated, maybe it was wonderful, but maybe it also needed to end. And if you can see that and respect that, you'll be on a you'll be on far better ground to look back at it 
honestly and appreciate mm. it for what it really was and not just view, view it as a girl with a pout and a country Joe and a fish t-shirt, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think you'll, yeah, I, 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 you're, you're nodding, you're smiling. Totally. I, 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 I brought you back. I brought you, you, back. you, you brought me back. I really love that. I think that was beautiful because I think, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I, you know, this pandemic has me thinking a lot about the relationships I have in my life and the ones I used to have. And, you know, it's good to sometimes keep the past in the past, learn from it, but don't get lost in it because there's so much in the present and you can miss so much by being lost in the past. Nostalgia is a bitter mistress. Yes, she is. Absolutely. And sometimes she wanders in plops right down on top of you on your couch and has to slap you in the face to get you to recognize that. <laughs> right? Yeah. All right. With that, Angelica, thank you so much for coming on and tackling the scene that literally everyone else was terrified to even mention. Even mention. And look at you like it's nothing. Just brushing it off your Fucking shoulder. Fucking bitches. This is, this is how you handle cinema. No, I'm so... You I hear that, you, Matt Zoller Sites? You hear that? That's no, Matt, I love you. You know that. I thank you so much for leading me and us through this very mysterious, very complicated, and I think in its own dark jewel kind of way, very wonderful sequence. I really appreciate it. Before we go, tell everyone where they can find your stuff. Well, I'm a staff writer at Vulture, so that's where you'll find 95, 99% of my writing. Occasionally, I've written for Criterion releases, uh, including Notorious and An Unmarried Woman, but you can find me talking about Keanu, talking about weed and mezcal on Twitter at Angelica Bastian. So follow me there if you dug my wavelength, man. <laughs> and if you want to talk about species and what it should have been, definitely yeah. follow this woman. Follow this woman. All right. Thank you so much, Angelica. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And be sure to join us next time where myself and a very special guest are going to find out what's going to keep Doc up at night. Whew! Anyone else fanning themselves right about now? If ever there was someone equipped to take on the scene of scenes, it sure as shit was an egregiously stoned Angelica Jade Bastien. Thanks, lady. We sure owe you one. And now we drift from the film's heaviest scene to our host's favorite one. Will he make it through without bawling his eyes out? We'll see what we can see. Next time on Increment Vice. <laughs>